You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeremiah Johnson, co-founder of the Neoliberal Project. The Neoliberal Project works in partnership with PPI, organizing chapters of young liberals across the country, building relationships with academics, journalists, and elected officials, and promoting liberal values through our media channels. Today's episode of Radically Pragmatic is a joint episode with the Neoliberal Podcast. We're talking with Tressa Pankovitz and Curtis Valentine from PPI's Reinventing America's Schools Project about charter schools and school choice. Enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking about America's school system and specifically the idea of charter schools. And and these have a lot of names. Sometimes they're called charter schools, innovation schools. Sometimes you'll hear the term school choice thrown around. We're going to talk about all of these related ideas today and why we should care about them and what the evidence says. So Tressa and Curtis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So I will start out just kind of asking for what's the, what's the quick overview of why we should care about charter schools as opposed to normal schools? Like, why is this even an issue? If we talk about improving schools and improving America's education system, why not just focus on improving the schools we've got rather than trying to reinvent the wheel? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start. Um, I, I think, you know, from the founding of this country, you know, we've decided that um, freedom is, is a thing that we stand for, but also opportunity. And in the 21st century, um, public education, uh, being educated is the fastest uh, way and the uh, closest way to determine um, whether someone is going to be successful in life. And right now, I mean, conversations around, you know, school models uh, is one that that happens oftentimes in conversations that folks like Tressa and I have. But when it comes down to uh, everyday parents, uh, they want a quality public school uh, and they want a school that is going to serve serve their children. But if you ask teachers, you know, what kind of schools they want, you know, they'll tell you, I want to be, be able to have the freedom to make decisions uh, in my classroom. When you talk about school leaders, you know, they're going to want to ha- have the, you know, the power to make decisions in their school buildings and having the autonomy to really make decisions that are going to be best for their students and, and for their parents. And so the idea of charter schools or uh, schools of choice um, is, is one that often people get hung up on. But in the end, what we stand for at the Reinventing America Schools Project is the idea that parents uh, should have the right to choose where their children uh, go to schools. Schools should have the autonomy to make the decisions um, that are going to ensure that the students uh, that they serve um, uh, are, are being served in the, in, the, in the best way for that child. But at the same time, that those schools should be held accountable. Not only those schools, all schools should be held accountable to a standard um, uh, it's, it's universal and that if good schools uh, are, are not serving students, they should be closed as, as should, you know, and that, that, that's regardless of the model. And so this conversation often gets hung up on terminology, but in the end, I think it's about basic human rights uh, that we as a country stand for. And I'll jump in just real quick and uh, talk about 
the fact that it's a modernization issue as well. Uh, if you look back, you could say that our public education system was the backbone of our success as a nation. We were one of the first countries in the world to offer free mass education to all children. Um, but a lot's changed, especially in the last 50 years. You know, you had television come along, which undermined kids' uh, desire to uh, read. Um, so we saw literacy uh, suffer from that. Obviously, the Cultural Revolution of the 70s uh, saw a lot of drug use and decline of the two-parent family, meaning that a lot of kids were suddenly being raised by single mothers. At the same, same time, you have immigration picking up, uh, doubling the percentage of kids from households that didn't uh, speak English from 2 to 20%. Um, and then obviously now we're in the information age with uh, everybody having a device or many people having devices and the internet and social media, uh, the onset of AI economy. So I think we have to ask ourselves, do we want to keep our school system in this model that was established, you know, 100 years ago around the agrarian uh, economy when, you know, the reason that schools are out for summer, it originated with kids needing to go work the farm uh, during the, the growing and harvesting months. So if we were starting an education system from scratch right now, we probably wouldn't organize it uh, the way that it was organized and remains in a lot of places. So in order to achieve the the kind of things and the kind of opportunity and and uh, freedom that uh, Curtis is talking about, we think that it's time for some modernization. That's a great introduction to to what I know you guys work for, Curtis. One of the things that I've heard you say before is that rich parents in this country already have school choice, and I I think I've heard you say this multiple times, and it it really is like a sticking point for you. Can you explain what you mean by that and, and what it means for how you approach education? Sure. Uh, again, I mean, I, I think when we talk about uh, this topic, charter schools, school choice, and, and I imagine some of your listeners are going to reflect back on their own experience, their own public, public education, uh, and where they went to school and whether they thought that school was uh, uh, prepared them for the careers in which they sit now and, and higher education and, and, and the like. And so when we have individuals who advocate against school choice, uh, being the very same people who uh, send their children to, to private schools or are able to move to communities uh, where the school system um, is better serving its students, then it often comes off as pretty disingenuous. And so you know, this idea of, of choice um, is, to me, uh, an economic one um, because you know, uh, if you have the money, uh, you can make a decision on where you send your child, uh, but if you don't, you're often stuck with what you with what you have. And so, uh, anyone who's deciding on you know whether to, what side of this conversation they sit, um, oftentimes you know you I, I'm I'm asking them to also look at uh, you know power um, and power meaning economic power, you know uh, whether where you had lunch today and where you decide to go tomorrow or where you'll vacation later in the year, some of us take for granted decisions and where we live and the car we drive and we, we just sort of do it because we've always grew up in a space where we've never really been told no but there are other communities in this country um, that struggle just for the basic tenets of, of freedom to, to eat where they want to eat to um, to drive what they want to drive to vacation where they want to vacation and this is not necessarily based on 
sort of inability for structural racism or anything like that. This is sort of basic economics. And so when it comes to education, I believe as a country uh, that that should not be a hindrance, particularly as it relates to what's happening in education. I, I gave you examples of food and, and transportation and the like, but those things don't necessarily contribute to the overall success of our country. Education does. And so the idea that children don't have the same rights to send, you know, to go to certain schools, and that in turn impacts our competitiveness as a country to function as a world superpower, that's a problem. Um, we have, you know, states that have tremendous um, uh, gaps in, in, in ability to, 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 to fill jobs. So, for example, here where I live in Maryland, I, in the past, I served on the Governor's Workforce Investment Board. And we had conversations with members of higher ed, with the unions, with legislators, with uh, private sector around how Maryland could compete within the region, with DC and Virginia, but also internationally on areas like cybersecurity, uh, nursing. Well, so so let, let me let me jump in here because this gets into a different area. I think we started this out kind of talking about the the high level theory of um, of choice, right? And you know that if if the upper class in America by default gets to choose where their kids go to school, they're rich enough to move if they need to. They're rich enough to send their kids to very expensive private schools. Um, it's almost like a, a moral argument that other families, middle class and lower class families, should also have some degree of choice. And there's a moral argument that, you know, this is just autonomy is good and choice is good. This is a form of freedom. But it sounds like where you're going with this is you're starting to get into more of an empirical argument. You know, when you start to talk about how can we meet the needs of the citizens, how can we start having more people, with, you know, who are qualified to work in technology and things like that. And we have a lot of listeners who are also going to appreciate that. We have, you know, a lot of people who are of the kind of mind where they're going to say, look, I appreciate the argument about choice and autonomy and yada, 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 but I really want to know if this is going to work. I don't know if I'll support this if, like, it doesn't do anything for the kids, if there's no credible impact. So I guess I'll I'll ask either of you guys, I don't know if Tressa might, be, might want to answer this one, what do we know about the impact, like the actual test scores or college admissions or life outcomes? What is the impact of enabling school choice or enabling charter schools? Right. So there's been, you know, hundreds of story of studies on, you know, how are kids in charter schools doing pitted against how are kids doing in the traditional uh, neighborhood public schools. Um, one of the studies that we cite to a lot was done by um, Stanford Center for research on education outcomes, uh, for short, CREDO. CREDO is considered the gold standard for evidentiary-based research into charter school outcomes. Um, they use a highly sophisticated methodology and they have no political dog in the fight between reformers or anti-reformers. Um, and the way they, they do it is they look at student growth. So proficiency is a snapshot in time of where a student is, how much they know on a particular day that they take a test. Um, growth is how much they're improving year to year to year as they travel through their uh, their public school career. Um, and so what they do is they, they translate it into days of growth. 180 days is a typical school year. So if a student is growing more quickly than 180 days worth of learning, um, they will 
say have 193 days of, of learning. If it's, if it's less, it's 160. So um, if you look at Credo's Keystone study, uh, which was in 2015, looking at urban charter schools, um, they found that the average student is learning 50% more or 100 additional days of learning in math and 72 days more in English language arts for an average of 90 um, uh, than, a, than a demographically similar student who had similar past test scores but stayed in district schools. Um, so that's a vast difference between student learning in uh, traditional schools and charter schools. So I'm gonna play skeptic for just a moment here because obviously both of you guys um, are, are very pro-school choice, pro-charter schools, and and you're very willing to make the argument in favor. And and if I'm putting my cards on the table, I'm also ideologically inclined to, to be pretty warm tar towards charter schools, but we need somebody to play devil's advocate here. So some of the research that I've seen in, in researching this episode suggests that there is a difference between how charter schools perform in different contexts. I think the um, the credo research that you suggested or that you referenced right there uh, specifically was an urban study of, of urban schools. Um, one of the things that I've seen is that there are differences in quality in terms of urban charter schools tend to do very well, whereas the general nationwide evidence is, is a lot more mixed and a lot more muddled. Um, I've seen similar studies that say like charter schools have really uh, pretty good impacts on uh, black or Latino uh, students. But if you go into like a rich white middle class neighborhood or something like that, that there's not really any uh, benefit. Is that your understanding of the data or or do you do you think that's accurate or do you think that that's uh, not not an accurate picture of how things are? I think it's really important that you look at who's doing the study and make sure that there's no political bias behind the study. And I will say that um, Reinventing America's Schools Project, we really do focus on minority and low-income students because those are the ones that are marginalized and disadvantaged if they're living in a zip code um, where the schools are not performing and haven't been performing for decades. And we really do see a strong impact there. I'll give you another example. Um, in 2019, Washington, D.C. received a lot of praise because uh, they did great on the nation's report card, which is the test we all took every other year in school. Uh, shorthand, we call it the NAEP. Um, and in, uh, you know, in 2003, uh, uh, Washington, D.C., public school district fourth graders, okay, they were trailing other cities by 28 points in reading and 29 in math. In 2019, uh, that gap shrunk to five points in both subjects. Um, so great, that, that looks great when you look at the district. But if you look at Washington, D.C. public schools, low-income children, well, in 2019, uh, eighth graders eligible for free or reduced lunch, which is how we measure poverty, um, scored 25th out of all 27 urban districts in reading. Um, and the gap between them and their counterpoint counterparts was 49 points in reading, which is almost five grade levels. In math, it was even worse. It was at 53 points. Okay, so those are the district schools. Um, 
what we see is the district as well as a whole doing well, but um, the low income kids still not doing well. <clears throat> so now in contrast, when you look at DC's charter schools, uh, we see an entirely different picture. In 2019, the NAEP score gap, very same test between uh, the charter schools, students who were eligible for free or reduced lunch and, and the non-eligible in eighth grade was just 12 points. Um, and in fourth grade, it averaged just 10 points. So you can really see that, um, that urban and low income and minority kids are benefiting from charter schools. And that's, that's something that we care about very much at Reinventing America Schools. One other devil's advocate argument that I see comes from people who will acknowledge that charter schools often get better scores. Um, and again, maybe these better scores are mostly focused in urban minority neighborhoods, but maybe that's what we care about the most. Maybe we, you know, think those are the schools that need the most improvement. So maybe it's not actually as important that the uh, the very rich white suburbs get, uh, you know, greatly improved schools as much as urban schools. But even some critics who acknowledge that the scores are higher will say that, for lack of a better term, charter schools are cheating to get those higher scores, that there is selection effects at play, that charter schools are just selecting the best students. And, you know, even even when it's supposed to be a random lottery, they'll find ways to kind of discourage poorer parents um, or low involvement parents from from coming in. Do you think that any of those accusations have any merit? You know, I mean, I, I um, in addition to being, you know, deputy director of a project, I'm also a an authorizer in my school district in Prince George's County, Maryland, where I've sat on the school board. I've been on the school board for. And can you can you explain what an authorizer is for listeners who might not know exactly what that is? So uh, a charter school um, is a school that has received a charter, a, a sort of a, a contract um, between uh, that school, the, the school founder, the board that uh, applies for it, and uh, a governing body. It could be a school district. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a, a university partner that has been given the power by the state to approve um, a school to function and to receive public dollars. Uh, along with um, you know the accountability that comes along with using public dollars. And that authorizer or body that authorizes the school is, is held accountable to ensure that that charter school is meeting uh, the expectations outlined in that charter slash contract. And so um, you know even before I joined the school board, um, I was an advocate for, for charter schools here in the state of Maryland. Um, and the, the role that authorizers are in, are, in this case in Maryland, school boards, which are the only authorizers of, of schools, um, of charter schools, how they functioned um, and the role they played in um, enrollment and ensuring that, you know, those uh, students that, in, that, that wanted to get into charter schools that applied um, were enrolled regardless of um, their, their previous test scores, their geography or their income level. And that is the case. And uh, in all the states that I've that I've partnered with, worked in, um, that the school district controls the enrollment of a charter school, um, so that charter schools don't have the power to, um, you know, uh, push away a parent or a student because uh, they don't um, think that they, you know, uh, that that student's going to do well at that school. Uh, that's a that's a, a misconception. Um, not, not saying that, that has not been a, an issue in the past or that schools, that charter schools have not tried to do so, but it is the uh, purview of the authorizer uh, and the local school system to ensure that those, uh, you know, ways of 
um, you know, segregating schools by by income and or by uh, by skill set uh, don't don't happen. Is this a is this a case of the ideal and the practice maybe a, a not meeting or or the practice falling short of the ideal? Because you hear stories about like um, success academies in in particular states where everyone can enter the lottery, but in order to stay in the lottery, you have to show up to a series of four or five meetings. And, you know, if you miss one, you're out of the lottery. And it, it ends up being all very high involvement parents who, who are able to do all of that stuff. There's kind of these, I don't want to call them slippery ways to kind of get around this stuff. But um, I wonder if like the, the theory is a mismatch from the practice in, in particular instances. I think it's different in different places. So Success Academy, uh, which for your listeners is a very well-known chain of charter schools in New York City, uh, they make no bones about it, that that they are a high-achieving school and they want a lot of parent uh, involvement. And um, not every school is like that. First of all, encouraging parent involvement is a good thing. We need more of it, not less. But the other side of the coin is that in places where there are a lot of choices, um, there becomes competition to fill the seats. Um, New Orleans, for example, is a charter district-wide. All the schools in New Orleans are charters. So these schools are competing for students to fill their seats. Um, They have school fairs with all kinds of bells and whistles. They give out swag, you know, uh, t-shirts with the school's logo, uh, pennants. They they even times go door to door to try to convince parents uh, to pick them over the other choices. Uh, Another thing that makes it easier for parents is many places that have a large charter sector have moved to a single application. So parents only have to fill out one application, um, put their first second, third, fourth choice. They don't need to any longer go to each individual school that they're hoping to get a seat in to apply over and over. Um, And that's something that the teachers unions have fought because it makes it so much easier for parents to move their child to a charter school. I think that's a a fair way of putting it. I I still have some, you know, we, we could get into the weeds here. There's so many stories out there and and it's hard to tell how many of these are anecdotes where like one bad school was like trying to do something and it doesn't reflect on the wider movement. And, you know, it, it's hard to translate anecdotes into like real data. Right. But I, I do think there's a case that like charter schools are really helping in some instances. But that leads to the next question where if you care about student outcomes, you want to know why. So I think if we really believe charter schools are having positive outcomes, especially in urban minority neighborhoods, the research seems to suggest, what are they doing that, uh, that makes it so? Is it, is it better teacher quality? Is it a natural consequence of having more autonomy? Is, are they using particular methods that we should you know, steal from the charter schools and put in every school? Do we have a good sense of why charter schools are going to overperform in the instances where they do? I mean, I would, I would say it, it, it depends. Um, I, I would say that, you know, when you're dealing with a traditional public school system, uh, that how resources are, are spent oftentimes are based on the, the needs of an entire district. Uh, but that when you get to a, a charter school model or sort of a single school uh, way of funding or even sometimes a network of schools, that you're, you know, you're able to sort of really pinpoint 
um, your resources in a way that's going to meet the needs of your unique student body. And so, for example, if you, you know, when you enroll your students and you realize that, you know, the majority of the students are are not, you know, uh, performing well in reading, that you can, you know, redirect resources and concentrate it uh, in, in reading and the same for math. Similarly, as it relates to the amount of time um, you dedicate. And so charter schools have the power to uh, create a longer school day, uh, a longer school year, uh, the power to... That's something um, that's really interesting to me because I remember reading, and this was years ago, so I, I don't recall exactly where it was. But if you look at the international test scores that everybody always freaks out about, because America's always some embarrassing place, right? Um, but if you graph the test scores on these, I think the international PISA is what it's called, P-I-S-A. And, um, and then you just graph it against, well, how many days a year are the kids in each country in school? It's like a super high correlation in terms of just the countries that have the highest uh, PISA scores are the countries where they do the most schooling. Like literally just how long are you in school? Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, the amount of time on task is critical to um, student learning and student outcomes. And, you know, to build on what uh, Curtis said about why charter schools overperform in the in the places that they do. Um, it really comes down to autonomy, uh, not only on the longer school day and year, which most of them do because they're accepting students um, that come from challenged populations. They you know they they come from poverty. Um, they come from uh, English. Uh, English as a second language is 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 a huge issue. You know, a lot of kids go home and they're speaking other languages. Um, so by being able to have the autonomy to make the decisions that are best for their students, uh, they really are able to uh, help the kids get up to grade level and beyond. Um, and I think the other thing is too, is that they have a higher accountability. No one likes to close a district school. Um, no one likes to close any school, but charter schools are held accountable by that authorizer. If the authorizer is doing uh, its job, they, those schools can be closed if they fail the kids. Um, they don't get to operate for decade after decade after decade with, you know, 30% of the kids reading at grade level or even lower. So I'm hearing a couple of ideas here, and I'd love to dive even deeper into a couple of them. I'm hearing accountability, which I know is a big buzzword for you guys at, uh, at the RAS project, that accountability is really important. I'm hearing just literally the length of school. Being in school longer matters. That's something I, I've thought for a while. But then there's also this interesting idea around like, uh, I don't know what to call it, micro-targeting. Uh, and I think, Curtis, you are getting into this where just the needs of individual schools might be very different and flexibility is good um, in the sense that like, you know, we, we wouldn't say every business in, in Manhattan has to have the same uh, business strategy, but sometimes that's the case for schools. We say every school has to have the same education strategy. And there's almost like a like a James Scott style argument for local knowledge as opposed to top-down planning. Is that kind of where you're going with this? local knowledge versus kind of top-down bureaucratic control? 
Well, I mean, if, if you go back to the history of education in this country, and it's something that I've studied going back to, you know, my own great grandparents starting a, a Rosenwald school, which is a school that was funded by, you know, with philanthropy, but also local dollars and support from local government, uh, that schools that are responding to the unique needs of the community in which it sits are going to be uh, the most successful. And so when you think about, you know, large bureaucratic systems where you have hundreds of schools uh, that fund schools, um, you know, at, at, the, at the same rate um, and, you know, this co competition we're having around equity versus equality, that schools that need the most, whether it be the most resources or the best teachers, are not getting them. And so when you have a, a, a charter school or, or autonomous school or innovation school like the ones Tess and I often talk about, you're able to, again, really pinpoint the needs of the community to build connections, partnerships with the community, with the parents. Uh, parental engagement is not just sort of this one-sided where we want parents to show up, but also these schools are listening to parents. They're having conversations with parents because they know that they are on the hook for uh, serving the needs of the students because the parents had the choice to remove their child from that school. And if they remove enough children from that school, that charter school will no longer be open or uh, the enrollment will go down so much that it'll make it hard for them to function uh, with, a, with a financial model uh, for the infrastructure and the, and the personnel and like. And so the accountability of charter schools is one that's going to push those who open these schools to respond to their parents and their students in a way because the power really lies with the parents and the students. So I think there's a conflict at times between a couple of the values that we're talking about, specifically that that idea of flexibility and the idea of accountability, because I think it's very easy to imagine the ways in which charter schools can go right. You know, that charter schools uh, update curriculums to fit their students' needs. They they are very flexible in responding to exactly what the community wants. But there's also times when what the community wants could be harmful that, you know, some people think that school choice is like, oh, well, my kids are going to get taught that evolution is a lie because I live in a deeply conservative area. Or, you know, you can imagine all these concerns people might have. And the response is, well, accountability will will fix that. Um, but sometimes when you go up to the accountability level of like a local school board or, God forbid, even a state school board, um, you know, the, the problem still exists where the, there might be a, a local school board that's perfectly fine with teaching that evolution isn't real or something like that. So I guess the broad question is here. We believe these are good things. Accountability is a good thing and flexibility is a good thing. But how do you balance those two so you don't have those instances where someone in some district might take advantage of the flexibility. Let me say this one thing really quickly. I definitely want Tressa to jump in on this. I think um, this conversation about whether uh, the communities um, know what's best for them is almost always limited to uh, minority and um, you know low-income communities. This, this debate about you know whether um, you know, the, uh, the future or, you know, wh whether the parents are going to make the right decisions on where they send their school children or uh, whether the school, um, you know, by listening to parents is going to move in the right direction. That conversation almost never happens in upper middle class white communities. Uh, no one ever questions, you know, whether the PTA at certain high school is right and whether to cut the, the band program in order to, um, you know, in in increase money for, for the drama program. 
Uh, and, and so, you know, this conversation, you know, is is one that we also we kind of have in isolation and not we don't want to talk about race. We don't talk about income. We talk about student achievement. I, I want to push back a little bit there, because when I hear about this, it's normally in the context of like Texas wants to change their school books to make Confederates sound like these brave heroes instead of like uh, traitors to America or something like that. And so there's there's a distinctively potentially anti-conservative bent to what I'm saying, but it, it, I don't think it would be racial or, or low income. And, and I should also acknowledge this is not really just a charter school concern. I'm also concerned that public schools in Texas are doing this. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the role of, you know, um, you know, again, policy making bodies, whether it be the school board, the state school board, and in some cases, uh, the federal government, um, you know, this conversation around cultural competency, and what children are taught, you know, is is one that needs to be had um, and is being had, you know, even in book publishing uh, companies and others who um, oftentimes because they have an income, I mean, a, 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 a profit motive um, respond to that, even though it could be uh, a historical. But I think your point is well taken that, you know, when we um, give power to to parents, um, you know, there are consequences, and this kind of gets to my original point around the consequences of of not serving children. Uh, but one I think is 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 worthy of conversation uh, as well. So uh, I agree with everything Curtis said, but um, to narrow it a little bit, your audience skews fairly young, but I would assume you have some parents out there that are are listening, and um, you know if you have. A, a child who started singing and dancing as a toddler and is kind of dancing their way through life, it doesn't make sense to force that child into a school that is heavy on uh, tech or pre-engineering type careers. You're going to want to send them, if you can, to maybe an arts integrated school where creativity and artistic ability are part of the, of the learning model. Um, you know, if you're a uh, parent who has a strong heritage from uh, another country. Maybe you'd like your child to be in a dual language immersion school so that they're learning French or or they're learning uh, part of the time in Spanish. Um, so the, the variety of models, and it, especially where urban density allows it, if you can create different schools, uh, you know, there's Montessori schools, there's, uh, you know, STEM schools, all these different models of schools, and you're giving parents a choice that suits their child's personality, or talents and inclinations, you're going to have students that are a lot more engaged and that do a lot better. I think that's a really interesting argument. There's there's a couple of things to get at here. Number one, the idea that not every student needs the same kind of school, I think, is a really valuable point. You know, obviously, if there are in a big city, artistically minded students going to art schools, technically minded students going to tech schools, I, I consider that to be a good thing um, within certain limits. You know, nobody wants to put kids on a track and define them that way too early. But I think within limits, that's a good thing. But you also talked about, and this is an idea we've been get, we've kind of been hinting at, the idea of kind of uh, experimentation. That one of the 
one of the benefits of having a variety of models is that we can try a lot of things out, right? We can figure out, hey, this new idea really works, or hey, this other idea doesn't actually work, and maybe charter schools will be quicker to abandon them than traditional schools. But whenever you have this kind of creative destruction, you know, some businesses succeed, some businesses fail, and that's how we get richer as a society. As a society. If that's going on in education, we would anticipate some schools really succeeding and some failing. How do we protect the kids who go to innovation schools or charter schools that just, for whatever reason, picked an idea that doesn't work? I mean, it's, it's curious. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, this this gets to, again, this conversation of, you know, this or that, right? Whether parents in, in affluent neighborhoods, you know, uh, provide programs for their children and whether they work or not, that scrutiny almost never happens. Um, whether a child experiments with a certain um, career and it doesn't happen, um, most people would not say that's that's a loss. It's just the idea that someone found out that they weren't really interested in that. Uh, I think oftentimes with the communities that charter schools serve, uh, there's often an exposure gap or an opportunity gap that happens. And that being exposed to whether a language immersion or performing arts or a program that, that a parent, at least at the time their child enrolled, thought it was best for their child, um, you know, again, that's a level of freedom that a lot of communities of color um, have not had in a very, very long time, if at all. Uh, and one that I think when we have these conversations, again, we're saying that two, these two communities should be measured on, uh, on different levels. And, you know, I, I kind of push back against that. Well, but I mean, I guess the idea I'm trying to get at here is if we take seriously this idea of experimentation is good, then there are going to be some experiments that work, right? There are urban charter schools that seem to really outperform uh, traditional schools. But when you're experimenting, some experiments work and some don't. And when they don't, I I'm just curious if, you know... We, we have any sense of how often that happens, you know, that this new teaching methodologies just didn't work out very well. It didn't help kids um, at all. And and what we do in situations like that, like do charter schools close frequently? Um, uh, do they have to reinvent themselves if what they're doing isn't working? Well, that's the whole idea behind charter schools. Um, first of all, is that they have the freedom to innovate, right? And to experiment and um, try new models. And that was the progressive idea, the bipartisan progressive idea um, behind charter schools was the modernization that I talked about at the top. Um, and it's different in different places. In this country, our public education uh, policy is made almost entirely by states. Um, in the early days of chartering, uh, Curtis calls it Wiley Coyote, I call it the wild, wild west. Um, some states in their eagerness to innovate didn't create uh, strong, high quality authorizers and um, charters pr proliferated and there weren't the proper controls. Uh, Ohio and Michigan are two places, Arizona to some extent, where um, they really leapt into it and didn't put enough um, accountability measures in. And so in other places, it's it's much more evolved. Um, and Washington, D.C. would be one place. Uh, they created the D.C. Public Charter School Board, which is an authorizer and grants the charters to nonprofit organizations. Um, after 20 years, 
Now, 47% of uh, Washington, D.C.'s public school students do attend a charter school, and that board does close or replace schools where the kids aren't learning, and they keep a very close watch on the on the test scores. Um, and as a result, D.C.'s charter sector has higher test scores, higher attendance, higher graduation, and higher college enrollment rates, uh, more so than the traditional public schools. And uh, you know, another example is Minnesota, where the first charter law was passed, uh, which we're coming up on the anniversary of in June of uh, 30 years. Uh, just last week, Pillsbury United Communities uh, closed, announced that they will be closing Cedar Riverside Community Schools, which was one of the first charter schools in the country and for nearly 30 years um, served mostly children of African immigrants. And when the enrollment started declining, in uh, 2020, uh, I'm sorry, in 2017-18, and then got really bad during the pandemic, um, they decided that, okay, the school is not keeping families engaged. Obviously, they're not liking the learning model, um, and so they're going to close it, even though it's, it's sad to see one of the originals go. Um, the, kids, the kids' best interests come first. That's an interesting anecdote, that, uh, that even a school like that would be closed, because I think you're right that a public school of similar notoriety would likely not have been closed. And and to me, this is just the interplay of, it, it's almost a necessary side effect. You know, if, if charter schools are getting better results for students, it's because they're doing things differently and they have new ideas. And it's just, unfortunately, not, you know, generating new ideas is good, but not every new idea is going to be a winner. And so there will be that need for turnover or creative destruction or, or whatever you'd like to call it. But uh, it's interesting to see that they're not afraid in many instances, in many places, to close charter schools that are not performing. One thing that you mentioned there, Tressa, that I'd love to dive into even more is the pandemic. You mentioned at the end that the pandemic really uh, drove um, enrollment uh, down for this particular school, but the pandemic has been making shockwaves throughout the entire education system, public, private, charter, unionized teachers, non-unionized teachers, um, in-person school, every kind of school, you know, online school, like virtually every sector of education has had these massive changes going through. There's huge debates about how to handle it. I guess the overarching question, you could take this any direction you want to, is what have we learned from the pandemic about the education system and what is the school choice or charter school movement doing in response to these things that we've learned and the events that are happening? So this is something that I, I want Curtis to answer because he sits on a school board and uh, so he's experienced it firsthand. Um, but I'll just say briefly, if you think of a rubber band uh, stretched to its absolute maximum breaking point, that's probably how we could describe our public schools during the pandemic. And I think what we've learned is, is that we don't want that rubber band to snap back to its original shape. We want to put a pin in it um, and using what we've learned about what wasn't working and only let it snap back to that point. Uh, Districts have shown themselves to be uh, large, cumbersome, slow bureaucracies, where I think we saw charter schools um, 
in part due to their smaller size, in part due to their intense parental engagement and community engagement, able to pivot much more quickly to remote learning? I would agree. Uh, I, I think what, what the entire country is saying is that we cannot go back to uh, business as usual um, pre, pre-pandemic um, and for different reasons. Um, I think, you know, education uh, has to pivot on uh, this opportunity because if we don't, uh, I don't think we'll have another one um, in, my, in my lifetime. We've seen the impact of uh, virtual learning uh, and, and there's some students who, quite frankly, um, did better in, in this environment than in, the, than in the, uh, a more brick and mortar. But there are some students who did struggle uh, and, and, we, and we can't forget that as well. But it's incumbent around school boards and, and those who are in policy to look at the entire system and say, how are we ensuring, again, this idea of, of equitable education, that the students who need the most get the most? And what that looks like and, and, and what models are, are going to ensure that that happens. And if there are models that uh, are, have, have more autonomy and more flexibility uh, than, than, than before, then those models should be put forward. And if there are models that were not serving students either before COVID, during COVID, that we need to make shifts uh, and make and make uh, and make changes. And so this conversation around disenrollment, you know, that, that we're having within our project and the impact it's having um, on schools, on school districts, on school funding is one that I think is in- incredibly important. But as a school, uh, you know, policymaker and school leader myself, I'm looking at not only the next year, but the next five years, the next 10 years. So obviously the goal of the Reinventing America's Schools project is to reinvent America's schools. Um, Schools are obviously controlled at a non-federal level for the most part. So that means you guys have to work with lots of uh, state boards of education and really getting even more granular into county and city level organizations. Which places do you think charter schools and school choice have had the most success over the last few years that you would point to as like, this is a model that we would love for other states, other counties, other cities to really base what they're doing off of this. Trista, do you want to take the one? Otherwise, I, I can jump in. I mean, our, our, our project uh, was founded after a book that was written by our director, David Osborne. Um, and in that book, he highlighted four school districts, um, Denver, Colorado, Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Washington, D.C., uh, and in each of those districts, uh, you had different uh, models of on how um, school autonomy was expanded. And I don't think that, you know, projects like ours, you know, should be sort of dictating how a city moves forward. But each of those cities um, did it in a, in a unique way, best suited for their in individual models. You had two districts with uh, elected school boards uh, like Indianapolis and Denver that were able to um, grow this idea of innovation schools, which sort of giving schools a, a lot of the autonomy that charter schools had, but more of the accountability of a traditional public school and have seen tremendous success. Washington, D.C., you know, unique because you have this hybrid 50, almost 50-50 model where you have 50% charter schools, 50% traditional schools. And you think about traditional public schools, excuse me, uh, the parents in the city of Washington, D.C., uh, and how satisfied they are with this system. Uh, and it seems to be working really well. You know, Tressa outlined the, the sort of the... Uh, uh, statistical influence on that academic achievement. Uh, but at the same time, parents are saying we have choice in where our children go to school. 
uh, and have just as much choice as you know other parents who have more money. And so I, th I think about those four cities are, are ones that we really highlight as as models for districts around the country uh, to emulate. So Curtis, I I definitely appreciate that each one is uh, each situation is different. Every school, uh, every city needs a different approach. But at the same time, like. I'm a podcast host. I'm going to like force one of you guys to like make a choice like of, of the four cities, which one, if you were moving somewhere, which one would, which system would you implement? I, I don't know. Tressa, do you, do you have a favorite? Um, I do. And I wrote a rather detailed guide um, about how they did it. And I, I also created some model legislation and that city would be Indianapolis. Um, basically, like Curtis said, we don't try to dictate uh, from a think tank in Washington, D.C. what uh, local places do, but we do try to support them in making changes when they're ready. And uh, so just quickly on Indianapolis, um, the state of Indiana came into the Indianapolis School District and took over three schools that had been failing for a really long time. And they, uh, they fired all the teachers and they handed these schools to a charter school operator from Florida. And it was just an absolute unmitigated disaster. It, it actually created a lot of pain in the community. The adults were embarrassed. Um, the parents were outraged. The children were uh, discombobulated. And um, so the state of Indiana proved that it, it did not have the answer by taking over these schools. Uh, so in a very unique moment in time, the superintendent, the school board, the mayor, uh, local legislators were all on the same page that this just was not a good model. And they passed an innovation school uh, statute or law. So the innovation statute in, in Indiana allowed Indianapolis to, um, so if you think of state takeover as like a stick, uh, we're going to come in and beat you by taking away your schools, um, removing the, the authority from the local school board to have any say over those schools, and we're going to hand it to a private operator. Um, the innovation law would be a carrot. And so in effect, the legislature is saying to the school board, the school district, hey, you have schools that are a mess, they're not working, um, but rather than taking them away, we are going to give you an opportunity to fix it by partnering with a nonprofit that you choose um, and reopening the school with that nonprofit running the school, but it, it's going to stay in the district. Um, it's going to use the district's building. It's going to keep the kids or not if the district decides it wants to open it up to district-wide enrollment. And Tressa, that would that would be different from a, a mini charter school setups in that it's still, you know, obviously kind of controlled by the, the district and even in the same building. And that's a little that's a little unusual, right, for charters? Well, it's not controlled by the district. The school would have its own board, so that board would be responsible for ensuring that the school is performing. Um, and it would not be subject to district mandates about the length of the school day or year or uh, which janitorial service to use. It would The money would follow the kids, so it would have the funding, um, and it would make its own decisions, but it would have that contract that would allow uh, the, the 
the governing board, which is a board independent from the school district board, to uh, enforce accountability measures. And so far in Indianapolis, it's working really well. And it's it's a win-win because, because the school is still loosely within the district, when the test scores go up in these innovation schools, it counts towards the district. Um, and a lot of the parents in the district, they're, they're not tuned into the governance structure. They just want their kids to go to a good school. And so when mm -hmm. they see these schools in district buildings, you know, suddenly becoming, uh, a higher performing and, um, their kids are getting more services, the parents are, are really, you know, in favor of it as well. So it's a much less disruptive way to get school improvement than a state takeover. And there's one other advantage I might add, and that is, is that it, it gives the district more control over the number of seats. Um, so if I go to the state of Indiana and I say, hey, I want to operate a charter school and I have a plan and a proposal and the state of Indiana says, OK, here's your charter, I can basically open that charter school anywhere I want. And that creates the opportunity for there to be an overcapacity where we've got more desks than we have students. And that's when it starts hurting the school districts. In this case, the school still um, the school district is still ceding control over the day-to-day -day operations of you know what happens in that classroom, but um, it knows exactly how many seats are in that building, and so it's not um, so subjected to overcapacity. So we're coming up on time, and the traditional final question on this podcast is, where should people go if they want to learn more? If people are interested in learning more about the Reinventing America School Project or about charter schools and school choice in general, what would you recommend them as far as reading materials, um, you know, documentaries, anything like this that you think would help them learn more about this if they're interested? No, thank you. And th thank you for having me, uh, Jeremiah, and, and to the Lee Liberal uh, podcast and to your listeners. Uh, I was glad you all tuned in to hear more about uh, this important topic. I mean, I would say if you if you go to our website, you know, um, PPI, uh, Policy. Uh, org, and you go to the Reinventing America Schools Project tab, you'll see a number of reports we've done. A couple in particular are um, sort of case studies we've done on Denver and Indianapolis that you could read, uh, and you can kind of get an understanding of some of the uh, the voices of the people on the ground. Um, you also have a Cliff Notes version of David Osborne's book, Reinventing America Schools, uh, which is a shorter version, uh, which highlights the, the four districts that he uh, he was able to profile and, and, and really get on the ground and talk to parents and teachers and school leaders and politicians and community partners about uh, why it was important. I will go further back, you know, personally, you know, um, I didn't sort of get too deep into this, but the idea of Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington coming together 100 years ago to create schools around the country that are pretty much the model of charter schools, which are sort of of publicly funded but independently run schools, really small, um, sort of a schoolhouse model, which is kind of the precursor to charter schools. And so those are sort of areas where I would go to sort of first get an understanding of the motivation for schools with autonomy to make local decisions based on the unique needs of the family, if I was trying to get more involved in this project. But we also have, you know, our website, we have links to some of our webinars, which if you don't, if you understand reading about what we're doing, you can hear about some of the work that, that we do and some of the partners we bring together. 
um, so that if you're, you know, jogging or, or, or doing anything else or, you know, listening to the neoliberal podcast and want to listen to another, uh, audit, you know, audio version of, of a story of charter schools and school choice and autonomy, um, you can do so there. So again, thanks for having me and look forward to the next conversation. Thanks. So that's right. And for folks who are interested in uh, doing a data dive, I'll go back to Stanford's uh, Center for Research on Educational Outcomes. They have done a series of studies on various cities where there are a lot of charter schools. I mentioned the 2015 being sort of the seminal study on urban centers. They've also done a series of studies on various cities and what's happening there. Um, they published one just recently on Newark and how Newark's uh, performance is dragging the whole state of New Jersey along into, into better territory. And you can find the Credo work at credo, C-R-E-D-O, research.org. And um, although they're data heavy, they are interesting reports. And then finally, I would just say, um, if you're a parent, you know, maybe visit a charter school in your community. Um, I know with security and in the pandemic, that that's probably not possible to just go wandering around a school right now. But, um, you know, take a look at the options in your area and uh, see what you think. All right. Well, my guests today have been Curtis Valentine and Tressa Pankovitz. They are the uh, associate and deputy directors of the Reinventing America's Schools Project at PPI. Curtis and Tressa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. It was a, a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website, at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.